Well, you may have noticed uh, in our readings this morning, we had this Old Testament lesson and, and then gospel lesson that both had uh, really this beautiful image of, of this God who, who calls us to himself. And then in the middle of those, we have this reading uh, that touches on one of the, the two topics that is bound to make everyone in church uncomfortable. Uh, those two topics are usually either sex or money. And I don't know what it was, but I decided, you know, I'm going to preach on that, that middle uncomfortable text. Uh, it is, I, I do think it's a, an incredibly uncomfortable topic, I think, for a variety of reasons. Uh, it's, it's a hard topic to talk about because I think that, you know, when you think about churches and, and churches like ours, we have a pretty diverse age population and, and sex and sexuality is, is a topic that impacts people very differently depending on where you are in life. And, and it's a topic that for most of us is, is an incredibly private and personal matter. But at the same time, it's a topic that in our culture today is, is an incredibly widespread and pervasive matter. When you think of the, the abuses of, of sex and, and sexuality in America. And, and so it becomes this thing that is incredibly, incredibly difficult to talk about. And not just for the, the reasons that I cited before, but you think about how many people there are who bear a great deal of, of guilt and shame over their sexuality and, and sexual choices and, and decisions that, that maybe haven't been in line with what Scripture calls us to. And, and then on the, on the flip side of that, you also have a number of people that I know who have a great deal of pain and hurt that has been caused, not by their own decisions, but by the choices that others have made that have affected them. And, and so when I think about all of these things that are circling around the topic of sex, it, admittedly it's one that, particularly in preaching and, and oftentimes in general, it's one that I would prefer to just not talk about at all. And, and just kind of remain silent on the issue. But, but this week, as, as I looked at, at those readings and, and as I saw these, these and read these words from Paul, you know, I thought to myself, I said, you know, if this isn't something that we can't or won't talk about as, as the people of God, where else are people going to hear sex talked about within the context of God's grace and his forgiveness and his healing. I mean, last time I, I checked the news and, and television and advertising, they're not trying to balance law and gospel when they approach the topic of sexuality. And, and so I think it's actually really quite important that we as the church, that we talk about this and, and we consider and listen to what the scriptures say about this difficult topic so that we can hear it and so that we can talk about it in a way that is colored with the grace and the love and the healing that Jesus brings. And in fact, I think if you look at this reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that's really how Paul kind of approaches it. Yes, he's, he's very direct. Yes, he is very frank. But his words are all also filled with the grace that, that Jesus brings. 
the forgiveness that he offers for all types of sin. And when we come to to verse 12, where we started this morning, Paul has already kind of begun this chapter with this discussion of sin in general. And you see, what was happening is that a lot of people in the Corinthian church, they were seeing the gospel as a reason, as an excuse or a justification to just sort of live however they pleased. So this gospel, it was a reason they found, they used their newfound freedom to just sort of live in, in immorality. And Paul says very clearly, very plainly, that this is inconsistent with the Christian faith. That to do so, to just sort of willingly embrace sin, is actually to forfeit, it's to hand over our inheritance in the kingdom of God. And so Paul's statement is very clear, it's very pointed that the gospel is not an excuse or a justification for us to willingly to enjoy sin. And so then he says in verse 12, he kind of points this argument and aims it specifically at those who have been using the gospel as justification to live in sexual immorality. He says this, all things are lawful for me, But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will raise us up by his power. So what Paul is doing here in these first couple of verses that we read is he's actually addressing these slogans that were used by the Corinthian church as sort of justifications for their sexually immoral choices. And so what he does is is he takes them, and, and these slogans are sort of influenced by Greek Stoic philosophy, which had a very high view of the intellect, but a very low view of the body. And he takes these slogans and he sort of flips them on their head. He says, okay, I'll grant that maybe all things are lawful. But that doesn't mean everything is helpful helpful or beneficial. That doesn't mean everything is good for you. And and I'll grant that all things may be lawful. That maybe all things are, are in your freedom or in your power to do. But to live this way is actually not to live in freedom. It's to be dominated, it's to be overwhelmed and overpowered by sinful desires and passions. And he says, yeah, maybe the stomach is meant for food and food for the stomach. And and maybe God is in fact going to destroy them both. But the body, on the other hand, is not meant for sexual immorality. It is meant for the Lord. It is meant to worship and praise Jesus. And not only that, but God is going to raise that body, not destroy it. And in fact, as you as we continue on through this text, it is what God has done and is going to do with the body that serves as the foundation for Paul's entire sexual ethic. He says in verse 15, Do you not know? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and then make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. 
but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with them. So Paul identifies that there is this incongruity that exists between the holy union that Christians have with Christ and this unholy union that is taking place in the church as people are united in sexual relations with prostitutes. And he simply says you can't have both. Our bodies have been joined with Christ in baptism. How then can we possibly take those bodies that have been made holy and sanctified by that union and unite them in sexual immorality? He says this should not be. And the whole point that Paul is making, the whole thing that he wants them to hear in this, he then states in verse 18, flee, run, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple, a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Because you have been joined with Jesus in baptism, your body is now a temple inhabited by the very Spirit of God, and it is set apart to honor and glorify God. So glorify God in your body. You know, I think one of the ways that we could perhaps kind of sum up what Paul is is asking of and and instructing the Corinthians in, and really actually instructing us in, it could all be wrapped up in this question, does your body have purpose or not? Does God, if, if there is one, does God have something in mind for your body, or are you free to use it as you please? And what I find very interesting is is that when we paint things in light of this question, we actually recognize that the world that Paul is addressing in first century Corinth isn't all that different than our world today. There may be some differing influences, but they've come to a lot of the same conclusions. And one of the conclusions that we've come to that's very similar is the answer to this question. Does your body have a purpose? And I think much of our world today would say, no, it really doesn't have much of a purpose because life, as we can tell, doesn't really have much of a purpose either. This is actually a pretty pervasive strain of thinking in our world that that maybe we don't recognize how much it impacts us. That, That once we sort of eliminate God from the picture and everything just becomes shaped by science and reason and everything is determined and dictated by the laws of nature, then life is just the result of certain processes, but it really doesn't have much of a purpose. And one of the people that I've seen or read reflect on on this truth quite a bit is an author by the name of of David Foster Wallace. He was very influential. Uh, He's a novelist in in the 90s and early 2000s before his very unfortunate suicide in 2008. And he reflects and and addresses this very idea in much of his writing. Uh, And and really how it kind of impacts the rise of entertainment culture in our country. And and one of the ways that that he paints this, uh, I find just very intriguing, very pointed, 
It comes from the last novel that he ever wrote called The Pale King, which follows the, the protagonist, a man by the name of, of Claude Sylvenshine. And, and in the novel, you kind of interact with this idea in the sort of stream of consciousness thinking uh, of the main character. And it says this, what if there was something essentially wrong with Claude Sylvenshine that wasn't wrong with other people? What if he was simply ill-suited, the way some people are, are born without limbs or certain organs? The neurology of failure. What if he was simply born and destined to live in the shadow of total fear and despair, and all his so-called activities were pathetic attempts to distract him from the inevitable? You know, I think in some ways this is characteristic of, of the struggle that many Americans and, and many of us wrestle with. Is there any point, any purpose to this whole struggle that life often is? Is there any point, any purpose to the fear and the despair that so often looms over me? Is there any point to, to the stress and the work and the daily grind that I face? Or am I just distracting myself, waiting to die? Is there any point to this whole mess? Is there any point to all the conflict that I see out in the world? Is there any point to all the conflict I see in myself? And if the answer is no, there is no purpose, no point, no meaning to any of it, well, that's a pretty bleak reality, isn't it? It's one that I think most of us would rather not deal with. And so what do we do if we don't want to deal with this notion that my whole struggle of life is meaningless? We just try to distract ourselves from it. We, we stare at our phones. We, we look for anything that will sort of distract ourselves, kind of just let us escape the sort of meaningless grind that life often feels like. And if there really is no meaning or purpose to any, any of this, well, then sex serves as, as a pretty good distraction from that. right? If, if we don't want to think much about my stress or my work or, or my frustration in life, well, well, porn serves as a pretty helpful escape from all of that. And, and while maybe it doesn't last forever, our feelings of loneliness and our longings for companionship, well, they can be remedied for a time by jumping into bed with someone. You see, I think that in our culture, this sort of sense that sex is meaningless is intimately tied to the idea that life in general is pretty meaningless. Right? Because if life is meaningless and the body is meaningless, well, if that's the case, then it really is just sex. What's the big deal? But you see, I think at our very core, we recognize that this account of sex just isn't enough. I think we recognize that there's something there that's more than just the exchange of two consenting parties. I mean, when you look at, think about the, the, the outrage that, that's existed in the media over all of these examples of, of sexual harassment and abuse and misconduct. You look at the anger and the vitriol that surrounds this topic, and justifiably so, 
see very clearly that, that we still recognize, at least in some sense, that, that sex is a rather powerful, personal act. And, and when that act is abused, I mean, that is one of the most lamentable sins, even in our world today. And that, to me, is a sign that even though we maybe go about saying things like it is just sex, that we recognize that there's something more there. That there's more meaning to it than just a brief moment of pleasure. You see, the issue that the New Testament and what Paul is writing here, the issue that it has with sexually immoral behavior, it's not simply just some sort of crude, archaic, repressive view of human sexuality. But you see, the fundamental difference that the scriptures teach and, and that, that the church proclaims, the fundamental difference is that we see a very different picture of the purpose of the body. That we give a very different answer to the question, does your body have a purpose? The church has always proclaimed a resounding yes to this question. Your body has immense purpose, immense value, because your body was made and it was rescued in baptism for the purpose of worshiping Jesus. That, that your entire existence in the body is all wrapped up in this activity. And so to waste our bodies on sexually, sexual immorality... It's to sell short the meaning and the value that God has assigned to each and every one of our bodies. But you see, part of the problem that I think is, is, is that problem that I kind of hinted at at the very beginning is that all too often we just don't talk about sex in the church. Maybe the only time that we talk about it is, is just simply saying, don't do it. Don't do it. You'll die if you do it. But if you actually, if you examine uh, the work of, of maybe the most renowned uh, psychologist, Sigmund Freud, this is his primary accusation and issue with religion: is this repressive attitude toward human sexuality. In fact, the account that he gives of the rise and the need for religion is very intimately tied up with repression of, of sexual desire during child development by parents. That it's these repressed sexual feelings create this need for this divine father figure. But I think there's also another issue that exists in the way that we often treat sex in the church. It's the one sin that I think we kind of treat very differently than all the others. It's this sin that we almost look at and say, you know, you really need to address that and clean that up and figure that out and then, then you can become a part of the house of God. Then you can come and be in worship with us. Then you can join our church. But you need to deal with that out there. And, and in one sense, Paul does treat sexual sin very differently. It's in this sense that the sexual sin is a sin against one body. But you know how Paul doesn't treat it differently? He doesn't treat it differently in terms of how it relates to the grace of God. Right, in our reading today, what does Paul say? He says, your bodies 
are members of Christ. Your body is a temple of the Spirit. You were bought with a price. God wants to raise your body, right? He does not exclude those who have made ill-advised sexual choices from the promises of God. In fact, he actually sees those promises. He sees the gift of God's grace as the very remedy for broken sexuality. You know, I think actually to some extent, Freud was right. I think there is a, a very intimate tie between sexuality and spirituality. The only problem is I think he kind of gets it backwards. Tim Keller puts it like this. Freud says that spiritual longings are just frustrated sexual desires. But the Bible says that sexual desires are simply frustrated spiritual longings. That within this desire for sex, in this desire for for a moment of ecstasy, there is embedded in that even this picture of our longing and our desire to be in communion with God. And if that's really the case, then these misaimed sexual desires should not be a reason for us to exclude someone from coming and, and being a part of the house and family of God. That'd sort of be like a doctor telling a patient that you need to heal yourself before I can treat you. You see, I think that worship is precisely the remedy for our broken sexuality. Because it's actually in worship that we are invited to once again re-narrate our lives around the gospel. It's in worship that we remember that we have been invited into this story that fills us with meaning and purpose. It's, It's here as we gather around the promises of God's forgiveness and grace in worship that we discover the cure for our mistakes. It's where we discover the forgiveness and and cleansing that Jesus brings to the broken. It's in worship that that we're invited to come and, and participate in the promises of God and be reminded that our bodies are the very temples of the Holy Spirit set apart to glorify and honor God. And it's here in worship that we're reminded again that there is no sin that has gone unpaid for. There is no hurt. There is no shame. There is nothing that Christ has already not borne. That he's already paid for all of it on the cross. There is no pain that we have caused others. There is no hurt that others have caused us that Jesus does not want to heal. And we come and and we realize that as we gather around the gifts of God and the word of God here in worship. Worship is the place where our broken and misaimed and abused sexuality can be healed. Sure, we may have desecrated the Spirit's temple, but the Gospels actually remind us that Jesus is sort of in the business of cleansing temples. And when we place ourselves in that story that Scripture invites us into, we learn to see our bodies, we learn to see our sexuality radically different. Because we learn to see ourselves as the very temples where the Spirit dwells. We we learn to see ourselves 
with immense purpose and meaning simply in living in communion with Jesus. We learn to see our purpose in being the places where the world can come and, and interact with the divine as he dwells in us. Our Lord Jesus has bought our bodies. He's done so at the price of his own blood, and he calls us, he has set us apart, he has cleansed us so that we would glorify God in our bodies. Amen?